Good morning. Good to see you all, uh, fresh after an extra hour of sleep. But thank you for turning in your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning. Our text will be verses 17 to 22. So I invite you to follow along with me as we read. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you. I thank you for our time in singing this morning and our time around your supper. As we have remembered our Savior, Jesus Christ, what he's done, as we've remembered you and your great love for us, the architect of the plan of salvation, and we gather this morning because we desire to worship you, to acknowledge the incredible value of you and of all that you've done and of all that you've said. And I pray, Lord, that that, that reality would be on display in our church. And so guard us this morning and prepare us, we ask, so that we would be vigilant and not allow those factions and those divisions to enter into our church, which would compromise the gospel and throw a shadow across the glory of all that you've done. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. And thank you to our music team for indeed uh, leading us well into our time this morning in our passage. It was about a month ago, but back in the year 1945, when the Charter of the UN came into effect, uh, which is probably one of the most ambitious undertakings in all of human history. Uh, its purpose was nothing less than to unite the nations of the world around the principle of peace. It commands today a staff of over 40,000 people, an annual budget in excess of $1.6 The UN represents a tremendous investment of resources and personnel. And it is also one of the most functionally useless organizations on the planet. How is that possible? Well, the seeds of the UN's impotence were sown at its very founding. The principle of peace was on all the documents, but it wasn't in all the hearts. And over time, this has only become more and more true. Almost anything of any real consequence is vetoed or blocked from discussion in the first place. The floor of the UN is reserved for political posturing and aggrandizing, designed more for the benefit of personal political fortunes back home than it is for the actual benefit of the world as a whole. Stoic expressions and bustling bureaucrats run cover for behind-the-scenes maneuvering and scheming. Indeed, the only time the UN seems to be ever presented as a place of significance is when it is used as a plot device in sci-fi movies. And then it's usually blown up by the aliens at some point. 
Is there any other organizational body on the planet that can rival the UN in its sheer ambition for global unity and its sheer ineffectiveness from petty divisions? I can think of only one, and I heard some of you say it, the church. We're not organized around a document stating the principle of peace. We are constituted in the body and the blood of the Prince of Peace. And it's only more tragic when we betray our call by making the Church of Christ a facade of peace, concealing a spiderweb of fractures. And that's why Paul's exhortation to the church in Corinth is so important for us to hear today, because the situation that he's describing threatens us today as much as it ever has. Our idea this morning from our passage is pretty straightforward. It's a shameful thing to use our gathering in Jesus' name as an opportunity to divide Jesus' body. It's a shameful thing to use our gathering in Jesus' name as an opportunity to divide Jesus' body. And I want to just say as the outset, as we jump in, this, this passage is a strong warning and I want us to hear it. But I also want to express gratitude for what God is doing in our church. And by the grace of God, I do not believe we are a division-riddled church. And so I don't want this to land as a harsh rebuke, but as an exhortation that these things must never be among us. In saying that, I still think that this passage may prove more of a challenge to our church, especially in the days ahead than we initially think. And we'll get to why at the end. But for now, let's carefully turn then to the beginning of our text in verse 17, where we see this. It does no good to gather if our gathering does no good. It does no good to gather if our gathering does no good. Look with me at verse 17, where Paul begins. But in giving this instruction, and Paul is pivoting here, it's almost, in fact, like he's pivoting to retract something he said earlier. Because he says, in giving this instruction, I do not praise you. If you recall back... In verse 2 of this very chapter, Paul said, Now I do praise you, because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. And that was how Paul had introduced, as you recall, his teaching on head coverings that we've been looking at and enjoying for what seems like months now. This, Paul had said, was a tradition that they were in fact keeping, but as he went on to explain, it was not a tradition that they had appreciated, that they had value, that they had saw any benefit in. And that's why he mentioned that there were a number who were contentious over this issue. It's praiseworthy that the Corinthians keep the traditions, but it's necessary that they understand what makes those traditions good and desirable. It wasn't enough just to do them. And I think that there was an important lesson in there for us, and that is that God's laws are always good. God's laws always express love. God's laws ought to always give joy. We should never be content simply to acknowledge and obey God's commands with some begrudging spirit. And I think that that can take place. I think it's easy in the church to see, oh, this is what God says Christians have to do. I work in youth ministry, right? We run into this not infrequently in youth ministry where it's like, okay, that's the rules. At home, if it looks like fun, my parents say you can't do it. And it looks like the rest of life is going to be the same. There's all these rules. 
And if we're a Christian saying, well, that's just the way it is. I'll do the right thing. That's a sad Christian life. We should pray and we should study and we should seek wisdom until we can confidently declare that the commands of God are attractively good. If I say, this is what God has said, but I don't know why that's desirable. I'm not done yet. I need to keep going. We need to keep going until we can see how the laws of God are an expression of love. If love fulfills the whole law, then how is this law a reflection of that love? And God's commands should be a source of joy. If I cannot do this with a heart that is full of joy because I recognize why it is so beautiful, I'm not done yet. Until we get there, we don't stop obeying. We keep obeying because that is what is right, but it's a sad thing to live a life of begrudging obedience to the very things meant to give us the experience of abundant life. And in the case of head coverings, the Corinthians didn't understand the amazing dance of glory and authority as it ping-ponged around in the Trinity and then also was echoed down throughout creation as well. And so Paul spent so much time helping them to see and appreciate why that tradition reflected beautiful truths that are desirable. But there's another threat to the church in Corinth. And this time it's one that is tied to a tradition that is much more important than head coverings. Because it's a tradition that's not just a way of culturally expressing an idea, but it's actually a command given to the church to picture its most precious truth. And Paul's setting this up by reminding the Corinthians that they can't just feel smug because they've kept the tradition. Just checking the boxes on the Christian life can mask massive problems under the surface in our hearts. And some are perhaps tempted to shrug off the importance of what Paul has just discussed in the previous section, like, hey, I don't need a theological lecture. I'm going to church, head coverings included. I'm listening to the messages. I'm taking communion. I'm singing most of the songs. Like, what else do you want from me, Paul? And so Paul lays this out for them. In giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. In the gathering of the church, Paul says, there is no overall benefit. It's a net negative. And that, that should get us our attention because Paul says, here's a church that's keeping all the traditions. They're getting together on Sunday mornings and they're doing all the right things. It'd be like coming to our church and being like, okay, do they have a fellowship hall? Check. Coffee? Double check. Now we're a spiritual church. They're singing their songs. There's some reading of scripture. They're praying. There's preaching. They're doing all the right stuff. Paul's looking at a church like that and saying, you know, it would have been better for you guys not to meet than to gather under the present conditions the way you are. How does a church end up in a situation like that? Well, we see Paul begin to explain exactly how that happens in verses 18 to 19. If you're taking notes this morning, the, the point on your outline there is this, the factious reveal the faithful the fact just reveal the faithful. Look with me at verse 18 and 19. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be, division, or be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Paul begins by saying, in the first place, and some of you sharp-eyed grammarians will notice scanning down, or as we read through it, uh, there was no second place. And that's not just because it's not in our 
text this morning, but because it's not in the book at all. Paul sort of never gets to second place. Uh, that may be partially because along the way he changes his mind. In, in chapter 11, verse 34, he talks about um, the remaining matters I'll arrange when I come. And he may have decided, you know what, we just need to focus on this issue but for whatever reason, Paul sets out, here, I've got a list of things for you. And then he says, you know what? No, that one thing is enough. This is the only thing we really actually need to talk about. He doesn't want to dilute it with other issues. And so we don't want to dilute it with other issues. And what is that issue? Divisions. Divisions. This had apparently been reported to Paul. He'd heard that this issue of factiousness, this issue of divisions was in the church. And Paul says here he's inclined to believe that testimony based on his understanding of the Corinthian church. It is not the same issue that we saw earlier. Notice uh, back, if you recall, in chapter 1, Paul had described one kind of factiousness in the church. The people that were saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Jesus. And Paul had completely believed that report because he knew it firsthand to be true. And he dealt with that back then. This is a different kind of division that's now been reported to him. And it's one that's a lot more serious. If you, if you want to look at it this way, back in chapter 1, he's dealing with the kind of division that happens when people are sitting around the table arguing about something. And now he's going to deal with a different kind of division that leads to, in this case, quite literally, people not being allowed to sit at the table at all. And Paul says, though he's likely to have believed this report about the Corinthians because of the trustworthiness of the messengers, his own experience in Corinth, Paul says here there's another reason why he believes this report. And that reason is more basic and more theological. He tells us here that in the purposes of God, factions and divisions are not to be unexpected because God actually brings them about not just to be a threat to the church, but as a proving ground for real faith. That God allows divisions into the church that true faithfulness might be revealed. Factions cause us either to embrace true Christian unity or to give into our flesh. It's a primal spiritual battle. If you think about what ought to characterize our gathering, what ought to characterize our Christian fellowship, you don't have to go further than the fruit of the Spirit. This, that is what this morning, every week, ought to be a showcase of. As we come out from the world to gather together in Jesus' name and to demonstrate to one another love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, that ought to be the atmosphere of our worship. And it's interesting to me, because when Paul uses this word faction here, there must be factions among you. He uses a bit of an unusual word there, not the normal word for factions that we see elsewhere in, in the New Testament. In fact, Paul only uses this word one other time in all of his writings. And that one other time is right before he gets to the fruit of the Spirit. He talks about the fruit of the flesh. This is what makes war with the fruit of the Spirit. It's our own flesh and our selfish desires to be with people like us, to do things the way we want it to have done, and to exclude other people. 
I read an interesting sermon by John Chrysostom, the fourth century, late fourth century church father. He was meditating on this verse and on this truth, and he made an interesting observation. He was asking why it was that some devote their lives to what is good and some devote their lives to what is wicked. And actually, it was kind of amusing because in the context, he was preaching a sermon. He's like, why is it last night a bunch of people went to the theater instead of coming to church to pray? So, you know, some things would never change. Why is there sometimes this big contrast between people who dedicate their lives to unity and people who dedicate their lives to wickedness, like going to the theater? But he, he said this, and I thought this was insightful. This is the greatest proof of things, a clear testimony and unquestionable reasoning that in every case, the purpose is master. The purpose is master. And by purpose here, Chris Austin was not talking about the intended outcome of a situation, but the driving motivation of the heart. He said, that is how you're going to figure out the direction of somebody's life. That's how you're going to be able to predict the fruit that's going to be in somebody's life is when you figure out the purpose with which they live their lives. As we think of that in context with the fruit of the spirit and the fruit of the flesh, it's quite simple. Right hearts make for whole churches and fleshly hearts make for fractured churches. If our purpose is right, if the reason that we gather is right, our church will find itself growing closer and closer together in what Paul would call the bonds of love. And if our church continues to gather, if we keep doing the right thing with the wrong heart, that same coming together will not actually produce more unity. It will cause us to fracture and crack more and more. And that's what was happening in the church in Corinth. Valley Bible Church, by the grace of God, I believe has enjoyed a great deal of peace and unity in recent years. There's always points of conflict, points of hurt. And I know some, perhaps even this morning, have had struggles within the body. And I don't mean to minimize that. But there has been a season of blessing that we've enjoyed in this church. And I want to challenge us. Don't be surprised if God allows testing to come into our body to see if we're here for the right reason. To see if the purposes of our heart are where they need to be. Paul's going to go on in a bit here to show how the factious members of Corinth were demonstrating their true fleshly colors. But I want to make sure that we don't miss something very important in this chapter because Paul's solution to factions is not going to be so instead when you come together, make sure that you have blind allegiance to the building you're meeting in. That's my church. Whatever happens, I'm committed to that place. It's not blind allegiance to a church building. It's not blind allegiance to a church body. No matter what those people do, what those people say, those are my people, I'm sticking with them. In fact, Paul said there's a few of them they, had, they needed to kick out of the church. It's not blind allegiance to a building or a body. It's not even blind allegiance to the church bishop or pastor. Paul doesn't say, you've got elders and pastors there. Just always do what they tell you and you'll hang together. In this passage, 
Paul says, let me tell you about a problem. A problem that's on display when you come together to observe what? The Lord's Supper. Then, as we'll see next week, he'll say, let me tell you about the Lord's Supper and what that actually means. And then he's going to say, so let's go back to how you need to deal with your problem. He's calling them allegiance, not to the building, the body, or the bishop. He's calling them to a mutual love and commitment to Jesus Christ as what will hold their church together and produce sincere love of one another. And that must be the mark of our fellowship as a church. That's what we want. We sadly live in a time when tribal allegiances are everything. And if the person is on your side, it doesn't matter what they say or what they do. You defend them because it's your tribe. The church must not be a place that's marked by blind allegiances. We are to be marked by complete and utter commitment to the person and to the work and to the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that this is a place where those who share that same conviction will come. And no matter who they are, we'll find an instant connection of heart, one with the other. Otherwise, our church will end up being a reprise of what was going on there in Corinth that we see in verses 20 to 22. Not only are the factious there to reveal the faithful, to test and prove the faith of those who are coming for the right reasons, but in so doing, the factious are also in the process of revealing their fraudulent faith. Paul begins there in verse 20 by saying this, Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. That would probably come as a surprise to the Corinthians, who are quite sure that, yes, in fact, that's, that's definitely the specific purpose that we came together, was to eat the Lord's Supper. I've uh, got the receipt to prove it. Look right there, all the things I went to the meat market to buy, including that meat sacrifice to idols you told me not to. And I think what we're seeing here is almost a reverse principle of what we saw back in our discussion of meat sacrifice to idols. Back then we saw this idea. A person's purpose, use that word from John Chrysostom again, a person's purpose can transform mere food into a symbol. Right? That's, what, that's what Paul was saying. Meat's meat. Don't worry about it. But the instant somebody says, this meat has the purpose of giving glory to this idol, now you treat it as a symbol of idolatrous worship. Purpose can transform mere food into a symbol of worship. And Paul is telling them this can actually work another direction as well. Hypocrisy can transform a symbol of worship back into mere food. To gather hypocritically can take something that is meant to be a symbol of worship and it can turn it just back into a selfish supper. And so he tells them, you're gathering for the Lord's Supper and maybe you're even keeping all the traditions regarding the Lord's Supper that I told you to. But it's not the Lord's Supper anymore. Now it's just food. Because your hearts are not in the right place. How does he know their hearts aren't in the right place? Well, it's because of what they're doing. Look at verse 21. <clears throat> For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. Yikes. It's difficult to say for certain exactly 
what this situation is here, but there's a few things we can say for certain. One is that the divisions going on here clearly seem to be based around socioeconomic divisions because he's contrasting here those who are hungry and those who are drunk or those who have an abundance and those, as he says at the end of the section there, who have nothing. The fracture lines in Corinth were forming around the breaks in socioeconomic class in the church. So remember earlier back in chapter 1, you had people who were all relatively on the same page getting together and fighting about who their favorite pastor was. That's one thing. But now what he's saying is there is an exclusionary level of fractions and divisions in your church now that are forming along class lines in society. And that those divisions, we can also say secondly, clearly here, were demonstrated in selfish segregation of meals. Selfish segregation of meals. Notice Paul says, in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. That uh, comes as a bit of a smack right after Paul has said, you're not eating the Lord's supper. You're each eating your supper It's not Jesus' meal, it's Bob's meal. No offense to any Bob's in the room. Some had so much access to the communion cup, Paul says, that they're now drunk with it. And at the same time, in the same body, at the same place, some had so little access to the communion bread that they were hungry. Some commentators describe, and this seems likely the following scenario, in the city of Corinth, the church would most likely have met at the home of a wealthy Christian. Most homes of the wealthy in that area, in that period, were were laid out in a similar way. There would have been this inner living dining room area they call the triclinium. It would have been able to hold on average around nine people around a table. And if you had a group larger than that, which likely this church was, the rest would need to gather and find somewhere else to sit in the larger adjacent space that would have been next to the triclinium known as the atrium, which would have been almost courtyardish, a very sparsely furnitured area. And so you can picture the scene of this rich homeowner and his circle of close personal friends. And they're his close personal friends because he, he moves and interacts with them in his, in his same socioeconomic circles during the week. And he says, yeah, come on over a little early. We're going to have some dinner and it's going to lead right into our fellowship time tonight. And so you, you've got this picture of this, this wealthy man and his family and, and these close friends and they're gathered around this table in the triclinium and the, the lamplight's warm and the food is just in piles on the table and they're tucking in and now come trickling in all the other saints from the lower part of the city and they're all trying to pack in and find somewhere to dust off a spot and sit down on the hard stone of the, the atrium and they're passing around their sips of cheap wine and, and their old stale bread and they're looking in and watching this banquet in this like picture window window almost of the triclinium there and they're looking at one another and they're going something feels wrong something feels off not exactly the best picture of gospel fellowship and so paul doesn't miss words when he rebukes this situation look at verse 22 what Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? 
Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. Oof. Let's unpack this. Uh, that, that hits just as hard, if not harder, in the Greek as it does in the English. What? With this big exclamation mark after it is probably the best way you can try to render this in, in English. What Paul is like saying, are you kidding me? No way. If you want to have a private feast, Paul says, do it in your private home. And that's, that's an interesting thing to note here because Paul's not objecting to the presence of inequality in the life of the Christians here in Corinth. Notice he doesn't say, how dare you not all pool your resources communally and make sure that everybody gets exactly the same. That's not what he's calling for. He, he's acknowledging, of course, some of you are going to be wealthy and some of you are going to be poor. Some are going to have feasts and some are not going to have feasts. That's not actually what he's rebuking here. He's saying, if you're going to have a big fancy meal, do it on your own time. Do it in your own place. Don't make such a flagrant demonstration of selfishness in the middle of what ought to be the most tangible experience of Christian unity, the Lord's Supper. That's what he's saying. This world is always going to have disparities. That's just a fact. Jesus himself told us those disparities will always exist. Is it wrong to work to minimize those disparities? No. As long as you're doing it without stealing. But the, the fact of disparities is not the problem with the Corinthian church. What was wrong is that those disparities were on display in their worship. And that was a big problem. In fact, Paul says, there's only one condition under which this can possibly make sense that you would have a scene like that playing out as the church is gathered together. And that condition is that those who acted in this way must be revealing that their Christianity is a fraud. He says, if you want to do this, it's what you got your own private homes for. The only possible explanation for why you would ever do this in the gathered church is if you, in fact, did you see that strong language there? Despise the church of God. That's what could explain a situation like this, is that you pretend to love Jesus, but only because you enjoy his benefits and you despise the family that Jesus has put together. Ouch. And he goes on to say, and your desire is to shame those who don't measure up to your worldly standards of economic success. And so almost tauntingly, Paul concludes by asking them, you want me to praise you for making a mockery of the gospel? You want me to give you encouragement for shaming the family of God? Yeah. Not going to happen. It's not a small issue. It's a big issue. Our Bibles, our New Testaments in particular, are laid out thematically. Right? We have the Gospels, history, Pauline epistles, general epistles, prophecy. 
But if you were to lay the Bible out, your New Testament out, in the order in which the books were written, the first book would be James. That was the first book that the Holy Spirit chose to have inspired for the good of the church. And it makes sense. It was written in the 50s when many of the apostles are still alive. Most of them are still preaching. That ministry is going on. But the church is trying to figure out practically how do I live these things out. And so in God's wisdom, he inspires first this extremely practical, almost proverbial book of practical wisdom for the life of the church. And if you look at that book, you'll notice here's the top three issues that book addresses in order. First issue, how do you trust God and have joy in the middle of trials? Second issue, you need to take care of widows and orphans among you. Third issue, don't you ever let partiality enter into your church. It was a top three issue. James gives the example in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, of a rich man with a gold ring and fine clothes coming into the church and, and a poor man coming into the same assembly with his dirty clothes. And he says, if there is any preferential treatment given whatsoever, if you go to the rich man and say, oh, thank you for coming to our church this morning. It's so nice that you can visit. Here's our welcome team and our cookies and our coffee. And, and here's all the smiling faces that we've assembled to usher you up here to the fine seat at the front of the room and give you the best experience you can. And then the guy with the cheap clothes, you're like, oh, hey, yeah, there's still a few spots at the back. James says that reveals your motives are evil. And you are in sin. James also is not a guy to mince words. It's a big deal. How does that affect us today? Well, I think it may affect us more than we perhaps think it could. I want to begin with the obvious. Let's start with the easy ones. Is it sinful for people to be rich? Answer, no. Is it sinful for people to be poor? Answer, no. Is it sinful for either the rich or the poor to despise one another because of wealth and to make distinctions when we gather to worship? Yeah. And please note, it works both ways. The arrogance of those who think they have in the eyes of this world and the envy of those who think they have not in the eyes of this world can both be twin wedges finding fracture lines in God's body. How about this? Is it sin to be of lightish brown ancestry? No, thank you. I was almost offended. Is it sinful to be of darkish brown ancestry? No. Is it sinful for either the lightish brown or the darkish brown to despise one another and to make distinctions in gathered worship? Yes. Is it sinful to be a naturalized citizen of this fair country? No. Is it a bad thing to be foreign? And I know for some of you that means from anywhere besides Spokane. No. Is it sinful if there are any distinctions made in our body based off of a person's origin and accent and background 
in our gathered worship? Yes. Is it sinful to have lots of years of education, a bunch of letters after your last name? No. Is it sinful to have escaped school as soon as you could after a rather unsuccessful academic career? No. Is it sinful for intellectual classes to form in the church and distinguish, distinctions to be made in our body when we are here for gathered worship? Yes. Okay, that wasn't too hard, right? Hopefully we all passed that test. If that hit home for some of us this morning, then now is the time to repent of that right now. Start addressing that in prayer with the Lord, but most of us probably made it through that and we're feeling still pretty good about ourselves but I still think this might hit home more than we think in two ways. And the first way is because of divisions that we don't see. Divisions that we don't see. It's likely that all of us have at one time or another acted in a way that has unknowingly divided Christian fellowship along the lines of some worldly category. It's quite likely that in some way we've all been condescending We've all been cliquish. We've looked past people as though they were invisible because we're trying to find our people somewhere else in the room. We've flaunted status or blessings in ways that embarrass or shame others. Or perhaps on the other side, we've come in and we're like, wow, this seems like a bunch of upper crusty, middle-classy types. And we've assumed evil motives on the part of people's who culture says must be our oppressors, or perhaps we've been quick to judge or interpret comments and actions in the worst possible way, instead of love giving the benefit of the doubt. I would be willing to bet a number of those Corinthians who were gathered in those nice warm triclinians and were still remembering the wonderful meal they had just had earlier, had never even stopped to notice the odd contradiction their little Rockwellian experience was to what was happening in the atrium next door. I'll bet a lot of them, if you had stopped them during the week and had said, tell me about your church, might have even boasted of the fact that our church has people from all across the different parts of society. Never once realizing that the way in which they were living out their faith was making a mockery of the very gospel they supposedly were bearing witness to. And I want to encourage us to consider, and and particularly to do that through honest conversations, even this week in our life groups, how we might be blindly creating divisions among us when we gather to worship. And if those conversations are going to be successful, I want to, A, let's commit to not use the world's definitions of justice or equity. Those are broken. That only will lead to worldly conclusions and further divisions. But also, I want to challenge us, don't react to the world's unrighteous social crusades by turning a blind eye to where we can grow in demonstrating gospel unity here at Valley Bible Church. Those are both ditches. And so this week, let's have those conversations. And perhaps you're someone in our church and you've been feeling a little bit atriumed. This is the week we would invite you, please, would you honestly, gently, not assuming evil motives, say, here's an area I think we could perhaps do better. And let's have those conversations. And then second, and you were wondering, weren't you? Unlike Paul, we do have a second. 
I think we need to watch for the coming valley culture shift. The imminent valley culture shift. Brothers and sisters, our valley is about to change and potentially change a lot. Some of you may may be wondering why I brought a brick this morning. This is not any ordinary brick. This is a special brick. This is a brick that was laid down 98 years ago on one of the original buildings ever constructed in Spokane Valley. It was the back part of a place some of you have been to called Donna's Diner. And now it's gone. And I've been watching them rip that building down all week and I thought, I was driving around with Caleb, I want to stop by and get a little piece of that history. So I, I got a brick. The foreman there seemed a little annoyed at my pedantic request for a brick, but he let me have one. It is not just the architectural past of the valley that is being completely reshaped. It is the cultural past of the valley that is almost certainly about to be reshaped. You've probably noticed in this in the last few years, the construction of hundreds, likely thousands of new high-density apartment units and buildings all around us. And that will soon be home to thousands, if not tens of thousands of new valley citizens. And that includes the about 40 new buildings that they have scheduled to be built just on the lawn to the south of us right here on our, on our border. So brace for change. Brace for change. Get ready for our socioeconomic average in the valley to change. Get ready for our demographic averages in the valley to change. Get ready for our blue-white-collar balance to change. Get ready for folks God will bring us who will not be from the same backgrounds and have the same cultural touchstones that we do, including many who will come out of generationally broken and hurting backgrounds. Get ready for our ministry needs to go up and our average giving to go down. Get ready, not because this will be a bad thing for VBC, but because this may be the greatest thing. The greatest thing God has ever done for this church. And we don't want to waste a moment despising the church of God or or shaming anyone who would ever walk through those doors. Please note, I am not saying that we ought to prepare ourselves for some kind of self-righteous condescension. That would be sin. Roll up our sleeves to help all those poor people. No, I'm saying we need to open our arms to embrace the family that God will bring to us, including all of the cultural shifts that will come with that. Here's a a gut check question for us. If a brother new to our church talked about how he went to the welfare office and then stopped by home to put up a little sign for a local Democrat politicians before coming to join you at Life Group, which would be stronger? Your discomfort at perhaps having different economic and political values or your loyal and sincere love for someone who calls on the name of the same Savior you do. And that's where I think this passage may hit home for some of us. That's where I think this passage may confront us. It's not the categories that are going to cause the conflicts. It's the culture 
It's the different ways that people will have of living and God is going to mix them together and he's going to do it in every flavor and every color he can because that's what God likes doing. And I want to make sure our church is excited and ready to embrace the adventure of whatever family God wants to put together in whatever way he wants to put it. That's the test that's coming. And I hope by God's good grace, we will pass that test with flying colors for the glory of Jesus and the demonstration of the gospel in the church. And now's the time to lay the bricks of that solid future. One body under Christ, indivisible with love and truth for all. That's the only charter the nations will ever be united under. Come, Lord Jesus, let's pray. Father, I thank you for this church, and I thank you for the ways in which so much of this has been lived out in a, in a right way for the ways in which our church has reached out to help one another and to love one another. Yet we, we pray that we would not think we stand and end up falling if and when you should test us. I pray, Lord, that you would guard our hearts against the petty divisions that have left our world such a fractured mosaic of humanity and that here, Lord, instead would we be bound together with all eyes on your Son. And in our hearts, first and foremost, an allegiance to him and a love for one another. Lord, we pray that you would give us humility. We pray, Lord, that you'd also give us courage. And we thank you, not even yet knowing what it will look like for the season that you will bring upon us, the opportunities to make much of Jesus that will come. And when they do, Lord, we pray that as we persevere through, we would do so in a way that brings you much glory, your son much glory, is in full demonstration of the power of your spirit working among us so that we might build here, not a building or a clique, but a legacy of the gospel that will last much longer than any brick ever laid in this valley ever could. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Appreciate our family. Let's make sure this stays a great place for all the families. You are dismissed.